Greetings to everyone listening. This is the Greek Speak live stream and podcast featuring the Archon and the Greek. I'm the Archon, creator of GreekSpeak.com. Joining me for episode one of this streaming series is my co-host, the Greek, who will be with me in a minute. Episode zero has been posted to the GreekSpeak.com homepage beneath the subscription box, where it will remain indefinitely as a fixed feature. The subsequent episodes will be posted in the newly created podcast page, which is accessible through the media tab in the top right corner of the homepage. Greekspeak.com has no political, religious, or commercial affiliation and is completely funded and managed by myself at this point in time. So, that does it for my introduction. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show and thanks again for listening. Hi, Greek. Are you there? Yes, greetings. I'm here. How are you doing? All right. Yeah, I think we have uh, quite a bit to talk about today or speak on. Yeah, since the um, introductory episode, since we did shed some light on the direction of the series, uh, I'd like to move forward with some in-depth discussions on the various subjects that are covered on GreekSpeak.com. I think we were quite spread out across various subjects last time. But if we could allocate this one to the issue of cosmic censorship, I think that would be a good start. I started off one of my articles on the website with the sentence that what is oddly absent from most people's perception of life is the suspicion that there is something problematic afoot with the uh, general existence. So we do know that at some level everybody can detect the presence of malevolence in the world around them, particularly of the painful kind. What is less remarked about, though, is how people's perceptions essentially fall off a cliff when it comes to contending with the more ambiguous, yet more sophisticated forms of malevolence that chip away at them, um, in part because of what they subscribe to willingly. What can be said about that reality, Greek? Wow, okay, that's that's like a merry-go-round, and it's like, what horse do you want to jump on, right? But essentially, the two things that I picked out are the... Uh, the the malevolent evil, let's say, and the uh, just the way that people exist with it, let's say, right? I, I would say that would pretty much uh, gather that thought into a very simple way to uh, present it. Uh, just to start off, uh, again, since we're discussing cosmic censorship, what is it? And why do we say it that way? Well, I would suggest the word cosmic is, is originally of Greek origin, meaning the world, meaning society. But through time, it's it's taken on a meaning to mean pretty much all-encompassing. So I would just define that almost like a personal definition. It's anything and everything uh, mankind perceives. So I just wanted to define that uh, from the sense that I think about it. But now we tend to relax and just say cosmic just means... Well, you know, the cosmos is space and cosmic meaning something far out or esoteric, just all encompassing based on our perception, because basically if you lost your perception, nothing would exist in, in, in essence. So uh, just to make uh, uh, the, the, the definition, I think, more clear and the, and the definition of the word censorship means to obfuscate, block or prevent from being viewed or, or even seen. I think the cosmic censorship t- term takes it a little bit further by implying not only things that are obfuscated, blocked, or not seen, but also things that are not comprehended or acknowledged. 
Now, on the question of evil or malevolency, what's interesting, again, let's define the word evil. You go to an etymology, uh, etymological reference or what they call etymological dictionary, and you'll see there's a pretty, uh, 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 you know, uh, showing the origin, pretty elaborate sense of how the word can be defined or what it means. But what, what took hold uh, of my interest is as you go down on the definition, you'll find that it uh, uh, also includes being subject to disease which brings it home for more more people because when you understand the word evil, well, it's basically based on the cultural norm. A society of headhunters would find it evil if another group came in and prevented them from harvesting human heads. So then you, there's the relative morality there, but this, I think, transcends that when you look at the aspect of being subject to disease as being one of the definitions of evil, which is actually what we find in a lot of the ancient writs. When a society or group of people were deemed evil, they were subject to disease and war and famine and pestilence and maladies. So this is also one of the attributes and dis discussing cosmic censorship because, for example, uh, I think I used the, I brought up the medical system several times recently because it's hand in hand with the uh, agricultural and food also intake. Um, what's interesting is if you look at what's put out in terms of pharmaceuticals, which mean poison, by the way, look up the word pharma, and what's called medicine, most of those drugs within uh, or medicines uh, uh, within a decade are deemed unsafe. Right. So uh, and, and the people do suffer what is considered the side effects or that makes them uh, uh, unsafe while they're uh, aspiring to acquire them and use them. So nothing changes. So so is that evil? And well, yes, and, and very simply by definition. But then again, what drives people towards that? you see, is the cosmic censorship. In other words, yes, you can say that the people are drawn to it through means of propaganda and marketing, meaning um, advertising, which is essentially is the foremost breeder of covetedness in the world, which basically makes people aware, aware of things that they were not aware of before. And then not only that, makes them want those things, right, uh, at cost or whatever. So the this aspect is, can also be explored, but the aspect of cosmic censorship kicks in with something uh, with the harmful uh, remedies and medications that are put out in modern society. When you present all of the facts and the truth of the matter, historically and present, to, to the willing victim. The willing victim would be uh, easy to encounter at a, a, a line at a pharmacy, which, you, which are pre pretty common in the Western civilizations. And you say, hey, by the way, I see you're online here to acquire some of these drugs, whatever you're for. But do you know statistically this or the facts are this or even more informally that have you ever considered the side effects? And most of the time, if not all of the time, it's disregarded. Now, if we're supposed to be rational, logical creatures, how can we, we meaning they, uh, the person that you just addressed, uh, deny what you had just said as the potential of causing harm, but yet they, yet they still desire it. So, uh, and again, let's forego for now the aspect of propaganda, advertising, and marketing. Then there's the aspect of personal gain, or the person is suffering some illness and this has been put in front of them as relief, but yet the, the truth of the matter is outside of, let's say, something that's a painkiller that would dull the senses, that none of them really work. And this is pretty much well known. Uh, as as overall beneficial to the body, right? 
Uh, you know, of course, there's the compromise. So I, I use this as a metaphor because this uh, model of uh, presenting what is real or truthful to someone is often negated in, in an unreasonable way. And there can't be any, any explanation other than that there is a force or a condition called cosmic censorship that prevents them to. And I think the cosmic censorship can be considered to transcend cultural norms, personal desires, and things like that. So again, bringing this through as, a, as an idea, as just a metaphor, you will see it goes across um, many fields of study, many uh, aspects of human society. So the malady and the evil and the, and the, that, that befall the people because of their negation of reality or the truth of a certain matter um, can be considered to be a testament to their, to their robustness, so, you know, the way that we're, the humans are made or people are made, uh, but also uh, unnecessary suffering if you view the whole situation uh, on what's going on because the, the access to uh, the information to avoid it is there, but it's negated and constantly negated. So that's the, the essence of the cosmic censorship. Now, the, that has to tie into where does the cosmic censorship come from and, and more of what it is and how it's done. Mm -hmm. It's quite a sophisticated interlocking web of, of deceptions then that would power the whole thing, I'm thinking. Because when you make a statement like pharmaceuticals generally don't work other than for pain relief, I mean, that's a big statement. But clearly they do work enough for people to feel compelled to use them beyond just right. pain relief, right? The, the reason why I say that is because if you, uh, overall it sounds, it sounds to most it would be an absurd statement, and then to some they it would, they would be highly speculative, and then a very few know that. And what, so let's just bypass the first two and the ones, why do they know that? Because uh, first of all, th those that know that pharmaceuticals don't work, and this goes also with many techniques and methodologies that the medical systems use, is because look at the outcome whether you want to look at uh, a very short outcome, which would be that while the person is being treated with these, the results are not, um, let's say, as, as conclusive and as complete as, as pr predicted or promised, right? Then you have the long-term effects, and within the, between the initial taking of these things to the long-term effects, you have what's called side effects. So it, it all boils down to the operation was, was a success and the patient died. <clears throat> you see. So uh, you can do your own study on this. It's not really uh, uh, popular because uh, you have to also understand how the money system works when there is no money. Now, that sounds kind of crazy to say that. But again, to go back to the cosmic censorship aspect, where is it coming from? What, what and how is it being caused uh, is beyond, like you uh, mentioned, deception. Because in order to provide a a deceptive condition, the, con uh, the, the condition has to appear truthful and correct to the victim. Because most, you couldn't, if, if someone wanted to deceive someone else, they wouldn't wear a t-shirt, I'm here to deceive you, and hold up a sign, I'm here to deceive you, and say, I'm here to deceive you. They wouldn't, <laughs> you see, that's an extreme, but, so it's, it's, it goes more in the realm of counterfeit, and it has to interlock with what the person believes is correct. Notice I didn't say right or good. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Because again, in a society of headhunters, if if another group came in and and persuade attempted to persuade them or prevented them from harvesting human heads, that group would be viewed as evil by the headhunters who want to har harvest human heads. You see, this is not relative moralism, or, or or anything like that. This is just is the being going to survive in the condition or thrive in the conditions that it's in or not. That's why I, I brought up the term. Of e one of the definitions, uh, one of the terms included in the definition of the word evil is being subject to disease, because that is not a matter of opinion anymore, or moral relativism, right? Remember, you know, back in the medieval ages, people would go through the streets in carts and say, you know, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. You know, it was quite normal, but is it even though it was normal during the plague times, um, was it evil? Of course. You see, and that's how you can contrast what you think is evil and what is good by just basically looking at what is it, what is actually being performed by this description, right? Or, or what is the condition that is prevalent, but that can be described with the term evil. Usually, until it, that term evil is brought down to pestilence, destruction, war, disease, it's it's just argued or negated. Good is thriving, promotes life. Uh, pleasantry, pleasantness, and evil promotes death, promotes struggle, promotes disease, which is sometimes worse than death, right? And um, and, th and and malady, right? Unpleasantness, and because here, people are are, are more interested in su a quantified support. They they've most people have lost the ability to understand qualitative support. The quantity of evil in a society can easily be measured by how many people are dropping like flies or sick or killing each other or bickering with each other or warring with each other, you see. In essence, mankind is still in a place where you're going to have to quantify in a material sense. But if people's conceptualization of good and evil have largely been limited to the material terms of their well-being, what are you implying are the alternatives to that if we want to use quality as the measure instead? In other words, how else would we conceptualize good and evil when we live in a material reality anyway? Well, I wouldn't say that the, the reality is, is material. Actually, a very small aspect of it is, especially if you understand uh, electrical engineering, uh, how the weather works, uh, uh, what, what scientists are wrestling with, you know, the real microcosms of things. Uh, you know, looking under their tele, uh, telescopes as well, but microscopes and how small, you know, can they see, you know, how what, what is what is the you know, what is everything everything made of and any material scientist, even with their, um, I would say, training, because they're technicians in essence, will tell you that the closer they look at matter, they find that there's nothing there. Right. Even if you look at the uh, fallacious model of uh, of the atom. Right, uh, it's uh, they have an, a planetary model of a, an electron spinning around a central body known as a proton or neutron. The 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 size of that atom is is mostly uh, uh, undefined as or defined as space. So I would suggest that um, in the future, people will start to uh, discount that we are just in a material world. Uh, over uh, the reality that we're the, most of reality is immaterial. 
they'll find that the actual significance of uh, their reality is uh, intangible by their five senses or six senses. Mm. So to address the, the question specifically, though, the good and evil thing, how do we move away from the quantitative assessment to the qualitative assessment if that is to be had? Well, again, this is a subject that people uh, find um, as a category that's something that they want to just uh, slip slip over to the side or make it a uh, make it something that is optional to think about. Uh, and it's a category, again, based on uh, if we go back to what is morality, what is law, what is good or bad. And uh, these are things that if one were to study history uh, from any point of view, we'll see that references were constantly made to a group called the gods or, in essence, something that people might say intuition. Oh, it doesn't feel right in all this, right? So, again, it's something intangible. But it, the dictates are, are accessible. You know, if you look at, uh, for example, uh, moral teachings, uh, all of the dictates, whether it's Eastern or Western religion or Eastern or Western philosophy, uh, people can access uh, the dictates of what more good morality is or good and evil is. But when they start examining, just like the atom, the closer you get, the less you find is tangible. Meaning, if you're looking for a source, you know, if, if, if I were to come into uh, your, your presence and uh, drop a heavy object on the table and say, this is a rock, you, you, you'll say, yes, it is a rock. Well, what is it? Is it a sedimentary limestone or is it a granite? Right? You know, we can examine it right, materially. Right? And, the, and, and you're not going to find that kind of direct examination with morality and good and evil because there are so many different societies on the planet now. Here's a simple uh, analogy. You have uh, someone who lives in a dwelling that is, uh, has a quote-unquote roach infestation. Right. And they, they, they have to stay in that dwelling. So they go out and either uh, hire an ex exterminator or try to exterminate these roaches or create a condition where the roaches are no longer um, infiltrating their living space. Right. They're considered vermin or pests. OK, take that person, and put them on a planet where the predominant species and inhabitants are roaches. What, what are they going to do now? You see, they'll be out of a job, to say the least. Yeah, they'll be very uncomfortable and misplaced. Now, that's an extreme example. So what some people view as being uh, beneficial, other people view as being uh, is not beneficial. One man's uh, junk is another man's treasure. One man's floor is another man's ceiling, you know, on a two-story building. Yeah, these things, uh, I think that uh, this, is, this might sound dogmatic to most people, but no one, I believe, and I say I believe because uh, I don't want to argue with anyone over this, uh, either past, present, or future. Uh, I'm going to say it this way. Um, you don't have license or a right to redefine these things if they've been memorialized through history in a, in a, uh, in a way where they are so clear and so potent that um, if you find yourself in a society where, the, where your history regarding moral, morals, what's good and evil, to be ignored, I, I would say that is a, uh, a sign that you're not living in a, uh, let's say, intellectually harmonious state. In other words, when you have everything laid out for you in the past, the reason you keep records, for example, 
uh, is so you can procure it to the progeny. So people will come after you because it's important. So people, uh, once they begin to examine prior records of what's been said about this and have distilled it down to a way where the commoner can uh, can uh, also not only commoner can only examine it but also comprehend it, uh, you'll see that there's not much of a question about defining these things. I mean, in, one of the the red flags I should say about society is when they seem to complain or ask questions about things that have already been answered, regardless if they're materially direct, you know, like a, dropping a stone or a rock on someone's table, or or just a concept like what's good or evil. These things have been defined for thousands of years. Now, if if you live in a society that is arrogant enough and ignorant enough to believe that they can redefine it as they go along, I would suggest that you uh, uh, learn to set yourself apart from that kind of a society if you're stuck in living with them. That's a harsh commentary on, on the current society, but I would suggest that's about as true of a statement that anyone can make. During episode zero, and even during this stream, you've brought up the analogy of the headhunter society as a means to make a juxtaposition between different moral systems or to illustrate how morality differs from culture to culture. And I don't think most people are averse to the idea that morality is not a set in stone thing, but someone hearing your headhunter reference for the first time may very well think, well, wait a minute, why is he using such a gory analogy? Like, do we need analogies of a murder-approving society to illustrate moral concepts? And maybe the guy giving the analogy is the one we need to consider for examination and not what he's saying. So can you explain a bit why you use that analogy and why do you say that it's not moral relativism, even though for most people it does sound like that? Well, I wouldn't say it's moral relativism as much as it's a moral contrast to perhaps have someone look over towards the headhunters and then turn around while they're looking at the headhunters from a vantage point and create that same vantage point uh, looking at their society or their concept of what's associated or characterized as the right behavior, which is probably a definition of what is moral. And I don't mean right and left, but I mean what would be correct or even in a sense of altruism, right? Or, you know, you've heard do no harm or, you know, help your neighbor and do unto others as you want done unto you. Every culture has some moral, I, I call it a dogma, because, it, you know, there's hypocrisy that underlines all of that, of course. And uh, when you talk about morality, I think that in the future we might have to define a little bit more of the, the mechanisms behind it, because if you say something is right or wrong, there's a much deeper structure associated with morality that goes into uh, what's been communicated to people regarding other sources and forces. So, again, that's a big term. But I think that uh, examination based on what people have translated as being right and wrong is a good place to start. Sure. It does feel a little bit like you're talking around the answer, but... Well, it's not really, because uh, simply, like, for example, in the Western uh, society, more uh, immoral would be something um, that is not approved by their quote-unquote legal or justice system, where moral is something that would be approved by their legal or justice system. And you notice I didn't say law. So we'll, we'll eventually we'll have to get into showing... Uh, whoever's listening, that there's this concept of uh, deification, heavenly gods, spirits, uh, 
something uh, that mankind has engaged in as a society and and it can be also put be posed as a as a secular argument because even though the most secular quote-unquote atheistic people this is not about whether you believe it or not it's whether it exists or not is that you'll see in the most secular situations as well um, uh, references to deities all the way through science as well you know uh, what's that that thing uh, that looks like a mountain that spews molten rock what do they call that in English it's called a volcano well guess what there's a god called Vulcan uh, you know, uh, justice. Who's justice? Why is it always a woman holding scales blindfolded? Well, could that be a revived goddess religion? So in essence, um, people consider uh, when they hear someone is very religious, they immediately associate them with being moral. But what if your religion is to ch sacrifice children for breakfast? Right? Within that group, that would be considered moral. And this is not relative because when you're in that society, the, the morality is the underpinning structure of what you're allowed to do uh, without, uh, let's say, a quote-unquote punishment, and uh, what you're not allowed to do with punishment. I know you say that it's defined by the legal system in a sense. Of course, people understand that when you commit a crime and you get put on trial, there's this aspect of almost shaming that you broke a law or whatever, but people have their own or what they believe to be their own personal outlook and their own personal morality. So when you ask somebody what's the right or wrong thing, they don't make reference to a law, they make reference to their own convictions or what they think are their own convictions and what feels right. good. So that goes beyond the legal system. Right, and, and I think eventually you might even show that most people don't have original and authentic thoughts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that can be approached. Or broach. Yeah, they've been, in essence, uh, if you were to state the reality, you're on a planet called Earth at this particular time in history, however, again, you want to state that history. And uh, the status of most of the people on the planet currently are subjects. They call them citizens, but they're subject to some form of authority. And that authority uh, dictates whether it's overt or co or, or subliminally um, what the morality will be. And that's pretty obvious. It's not considered and it's not discussed even in minor or major podcasts or, or sonic events. These are subjects that uh, people don't want to broach because they even have they even have their own view upon the subject as being relatively unstable and find safety with what the number uh, you know the masses or the numbers of people find to be correct uh, as their point of view as well. Hmm. When we look at the uh, known timeline of human history with civilization going back around five to six thousand years ago with the Sumerians, at what point is one able to detect the emergence of some kind of censorship that is clearly acting on people's ability to decipher uh, the reality in front of them? And do we include natural disasters and wars in the censorship classification? Yes and no. Uh, I would say generally, if you understand that, uh, like something like the art of war, Sun Tzu, that the art of negotiation to win without fighting is probably the most optimistic way to resolve a, a, a feud or or a, or something that leads to war. I would say yes. That that cosmic sense, the brutal, the in other words, to jump to brutality and violence uh, without um, you know a formative understanding that negotiation 
and compromise uh, leads to a, a better situation, uh, I would say so. And he said five or six thousand years ago, it could, it could go back further than that, but I would suggest that what we see at that point is not um, uh, by studying, let's say, secular stuff, but non-secular stuff, which would be, let's say, the ancient writs, because most of the ancient writs or ancient writings, whether they're biblical or otherwise, uh, tend to lean on a spiritual side. You know, they always evoke the presence of a god or a demon or an angel. And in essence, you know, if you say the gods, that should encompass all of that as well, all spiritual beings. And we will see that, um, or anyone can see by studying the ancient writs, that there is an involvement there. And in a modern society, uh, you can consider, uh, <laughs> you know, depending on the, what what fashion, what's in fashion at the day uh, for the day or the decade or the year, is the, now there's the the question that people speak about ETs. You know, there are malevolent ETs, perhaps. You know, but the the cognitive mind can easily encompass all of it if you going going to bring up how the effect of cosmic censorship started you can easily say it's the gods which would be gods angels demons uh, and so forth spiritual beings that you see evoked in uh, ancient texts you could also consider uh, that there are other civilizations that are doing it let's say you know this is a psychological you know an unperceptible condition that they project that mankind is basically blinded to many things and develop certain attitudes you can also view it as there is a uh, a group of humans or uh, people, let's say, that have technology that is far advanced to others, meaning it doesn't have to be the technology that we speak on today. It could be technology where that is integrated with them that they've developed, like what they call psi ability, you know, a spiritual ability or psychic ability. Um, that is another possibility. And, he, and he, he just or it could also be purely mechanical. You can have a little box that you turn a knob and everyone in the room or within a, 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 an area uh, can't see, you know, their, their head from a hole in the ground anymore. Um, so you see, the reason I'm bringing these up is because you need to out, uh, entertain the possibility of all of these things. And, and ultimately, uh, is there something that is preventing people historically and presently from seeing things that are quite obvious and can be presented to them in an obvious fashion that they can understand? Yes, there is. And hence the term again, cosmic censorship, and it does go back in history. Anyone who is even slightly familiar with the biblical text is aware of uh, things like the Tower of Babel and the writings and prophets where uh, the prophets are told that they're to close the eyes and ears of the people, you see. And you'll also see it in many other ancient writs. Uh, it's brought up here and there, but essentially it leans heavily on what we call the gods. Again, angels, demons, and gods, godheads, demigods. But uh, I would suggest also to fully encompass the study um, that it can be done, you know, by by beings that are not gods as well. I'm just throwing it out as a speculative speculative condition, mm -hmm. but the condition does exist mm -hmm. in ancient times all the way through. And how it's uh, and again, just back to the question, it started uh, very early on and seems to prevail in one way. To, to, let's say, do a quick judgment on that is the concept of war. A provocation where the parties are not uh, aware that there's a third party provoking them is a form of cosmic censorship. Yeah, you did mention um, at one point, I don't know if it was in last week's episode or privately, that there have been you know wars around longer than they've been other things, like banks, 
So therefore, you can't just blame war on bankers. Obviously, it has to be something that goes a bit further than what we can perceive, the presence of long-standing issues of tension. Sure. And then again, one day we'll probably touch on it in short, but the, even the concept of what people call the bankers, how can you have bankers when there's no money? The entire world's on a credit-based economy. So <laughs> again, it's it, it's very Alice in Wonderlandish, you know. Very, uh, it's it's almost in a. It's like a sec. If you start studying the bankers, for example, it's like a psychedelic acid trip. It, it, and all of the information, by the way, can be corrobor corroborated and supported with their own uh, writings and laws. So, the question, I guess, harking back to how early the cosmic censorship started, I would say, as far back as as uh, anything recorded uh, not only about human society uh, but by human society uh, meaning well you could take that however you want uh, you will see that there is a force interfering not for the best possible outcome which not necessarily means to to bring pestilence and disease but to just carry mankind along over a duration kind of like the metaphor that i've used before the waiting room it's like it seems like uh, human society throughout history has been in a waiting room of some kind. And I mean the term waiting room as I would like you were waiting at a dentist's or a doctor's office or waiting in a, you know, an administrative setting where you're told to sit down and wait and take up time. Yeah, I think that there's going to be more space to, to explore that theme a bit later. But one thing that you talked about in a previous episode was the idea of the blob describing how mass society is currently akin to like a formless sludge that simply takes the shape of its container because of how thoughtless it is. So I want to get back right. to that get back to that a little bit. So Western society is essentially upheld by two pillars. One of them is the Judeo-Christian tradition, which um, was the state-sponsored religion of the Roman Empire. The second pillar is the Greco-Roman, which generated the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and shaped Western culture around its philosophies and traditions. However, what is curious to me is how, despite the heritage and the legacy of the Enlightenment and Renaissance, Renaissance period, it seems, ironically, that the typical 21st century Western person is not the cultural, cultured intellectual that those periods revere. It's rather become the disinterested and almost proudly ignorant everyman or plebeian, um, the aggregate of which is this blob that you mentioned. Can you lay out what some of the key developments in modern history have been that have led to this current state of mass uniformity, of which I think cosmic censorship plays a role? Well, I would say if you, even if you laid out uh, an elaborate uh, scheme that is prevalent today about the cosmic censorship in modern society, I would suggest that the same scheme uh, was overlaid in mass uh, in past societies. It's just that we may not know about it. And with uh, research on how people have been guided uh, as as you would see their cultures permit, is very similar. So in, in essence, when I when we just bring it up in a modern context, it's also uh, the the overall outcome is the same in in older contexts, except for now, you know, uh, that people are walking around with what I call the stupid rectangles in their pocket, you know, a little touch screen, and um, you know, or at home or wherever, and they they do it using light and sound versus uh, just uh, you know, hearing or, or reading, um, it's a technological, let's say, evolution, or where people are more connected, where people are more connected, where time seems to be shortened for the message. So, <clears throat> in modern times, the the only difference again, because you'll see the control that goes back all throughout human 
kind is that what what probably took uh, weeks, months, or years to accomplish uh, in the past can be accomplished now in a matter of minutes or hours or or maximum days. And the reason I say maximum days is because you'll notice how the interest changes over a few days sometimes. So the the danger of um, let me just re, re retract that term danger. The the condition that um, the mo the quote unquote moderns are in right now uh, is is far more extreme than any other time in history because of the almost instantaneous exchange of information with the stupid rectangle. And for people who just to clarify, a stupid rectangle is if you have a smart device in your pocket, just take it out and just hold it about three feet away from you. What does it look like? So um, I would suggest that the, the main element of modern society uh, and cosmic censorship is almost instantaneous censorship, right? And just to go back to the blob aspect, that has to tie in, if anyone wants to study uh, The Crowd by Gustave Le Bon. Now, I'm not, I'm not endorsing that piece of work or Gustave Le Bon, but it's something that sticks out notably when, if you just want to study the subject of how people uh, form groups and why the groups are formed and uh, just a, a study on uh, group think. And the reason I call them a blob and such is because the individual is, is subsumed and consumed by the group. In other words, his individuality or the interest of the single person no longer is of any avail to the group. Unless the group, actually, the so many single single people are eliminated that there is no more group. Other than that, um, that's why I referenced it as a blob. And and, and essentially, if you're going to promote um, through this new way of, of instantaneous communication to the group, you, you ha in, in essence, view them as a blob, you see, or, you know, taking the shape of the container. But we are living in an era where the idea of individuality is sort of at the apex of, of human striving and there's a lot of effort and a lot of media and a lot of marketing that goes into pushing right. that idea. So if you have people that are partaking in you know, the crafting of their individuality through the means that they know or that they've been shown, how do you reconcile that with the, with the idea that also they are more blob than they are person? That that is part of the Alice in Wonderland or Orwellian or just plain out deception. Uh, what I mean by that is is in the the extremeness of the or of the current reality is just that it's it's so extreme that it's become uh, almost esoteric. Meaning uh, the point that you just brought up about accentuation of individuality, the reality of it is quite the opposite. Anyone who's ever let's say if you're older than 30 or 40 and uh, you've been through various administrative authorities through your personal experiences or even education system or religious system. What I mean by that is uh, if you've ever had a sit down with a priest or a rabbi or an imam regarding critical questions regarding one's place in society, uh, if you've ever had a similar conversation with, let's say, a what they call a legal judge in the legal administration system or the political system or the education system, it, it, from a point-to-point -point or person-to-person -person conversation with an authority in one of these administrative institutions, they will always tell you, you have to be just like everyone else. And the entire thing just falls apart. 
I've actually even recently, in passing, uh, had uh, heard a, uh, overheard a conversation with what they call police officers, and someone uh, 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 bringing up points in the law. And he said, and the, and the police, so-called police officer, said, "I'm not interested in that. You have to do what everyone else does." Uh, I've personally have a, had conversation, uh, several lunches with Supreme Court justice, bringing up fine points of the law, and they say you have to do what everyone else does because no one knows what you're talking about. I've had conversations with people in clergy, and they say the same thing of many different religions. You have to do. We we go by tradition, and if you're interested in what we do, you have to do what everyone else does. So again, I just want to bring up the point of the individual being accentuated or emphasized as a complete farce. But even if you say that the premises of a period like the Renaissance are a farce, there are still events or agendas that were put in place to specifically create today's world of homogenized, reactive consumers. And the Renaissance could perhaps be said to be one of those events. What I'm curious to hear is what other events would you point to within the last 400 years of modern history that contribute equally to that? Because, I mean, surely we can talk about industrial developments or timekeeping or population changes or the rise of contemporary art or, you know, things like this. Well, I think those are secondary to what's uh, what one can examine regarding what's called authority, because at the end of the day, uh, people sleep better if they feel like they're in line with what the authority wants them to do, quote unquote, the authority, right? So if you look back at something called the concept of the nation state, Westphalia agreements, uh, 1600s or so, and all the way forward to the uh, post-Napoleonic upheavals, to the uh, what they call the early world wars, you'll, you'll notice that there is a, 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 a vacuum of information regarding on how these authorities are being set up. So I would suggest that uh, the quest for power over society societies known as nations and countries and just societies in general, whether they're subdivisions of the main country or whatever, has not gone away, but the information about how it has been done has, you see. So for example, you have a society that's led by a king in an ancient times, and you have some even today, um, but I would suggest that uh, that notion of a, a, a type of political system or authority set up as a monarchy or a, what they call a democracy or parliamentary um, administration or whatever is uh, is all um, part of, uh, let's say, a charade now, or it's just theater. It's just theater that um, uh, if one were to examine why does he say that it's theater and and come up with a clear answer that you're basically the entire world has been subjugated by a very small group of people that do not want to be known, you'll see, you'll see there is a vacuum of information in the past 400 years on how this has been achieved as it is today. And evidence of why you live as a subject basically as property of a very small group of people is just by looking at quote unquote how the legal system is set up. Everyone is registered as property, you're given a number, uh, all of your uh, actions are recorded uh, and categorized uh, not only by um, uh, gender, you know, whether you're male or female or man or woman, or also by your race and your creed. Uh, you'll notice that um, uh, the the entire setup as it is, as it's landed today, is all based on commerce, 
basically. Uh, there is no concern for uh, people other than in a commercial sense, right? So if you, again, understand uh, the early ways of uh, authoritarianism and you understand the current ways of authoritarianism, this is also based on what's good and evil and morality and how society is being run. You'll see there is a vacuum in the past 400 years of how things have gotten the way that they are today, right? Most people don't make any qualm that they're registered and they're given a serial number, like a toaster or a washing machine or a car. You know, most people don't worry and are concerned that they're living under a credit-based economy, right, with no lawful money in circulation, right? Most people don't understand how there's a, a hierarchies being set up through academia and political systems, how it got this way. They, did, they, they don't see it. And that's where I would consider there's been a vacuum of information in the past 400 years, because in order to, for it to succeed into a, the stable so, or semi-stable environment it is today, and actually I would suggest it's more stable than semi-stable, because when you hear of instability, that is also manufactured to a degree. Um, there's no there's no question really about how in the past 400 years you've gotten from one way of society living with a certain mindset and then the current mindset that there is today. So I would suggest that there is more of a vacuum than than anything um, that I could point at and say, hey, look, this is this is an interesting, notable thing in the past 400 years. Hmm. OK, that gives a lot of food for thought. For people that are unused to hearing polemics against the canon of modern history, I still think you could better buttress your claims that what is touted as the most defining period of modern history, namely the 17th and 18th century, are a farce. Like, why was the Renaissance, for example, a farce? And can that be shown objectively aside from your view of things? Well, uh, look at what it's led you to. Not you, but, you know, specifically uh, the society at large. You're essentially now um, reduced to a piece of property. And most people don't see that, and they never will. And you know, when I say never, I mean in, in a very general sense. No, they won't see it. And uh, the, then one would go back and maybe ask a philosophical question. Is mankind supposed to be this way? You know, that's the question. Is mankind supposed to be numbered and labeled and registered as it is today? And how did it get to that point, right? And I'm not asking that I know how it got there. Most, some people do, most people don't, right? So I would suggest that um, the, the, any kind of a renaissance that leads uh, a society on a planet known as Earth into uh, uh, abject slavery, which is in a sense what it is, and this is not a, a comment, this is an actual fact, uh, you can call the uh, slaves, whatever you want. You want to call them citizens or subjects or Americans, Iraqis, Russians, Colombians, whatever. Uh, I would suggest that uh, if you look at uh, the past 400 years and uh, the post-Renaissance period, having a vacuous uh, body, uh, in other words, uh, the situation just didn't happen by chance. And to see the vacuum and uh, uh, the lack of body of work to uh, explain how you've gone from being even serfs on a field uh, harvesting wheat to um, being registered with numbers and uh, living in a credit-based economy, 
with us, with everything being in a pseudo state uh, is is quite the quite the achievement. So so in essence, when you say it was a renaissance, who would you say it was a renaissance for? I wouldn't say it's for the the mass population on the planet at large. Uh, uh, it was actually the their defeat, uh, uh, cosmic from a cosmic point of view. If you traveled anywhere in the universe and said this, uh, we're going to take this planet here and uh, turn everyone into our property, you wouldn't be viewed as a hero. Well, would you? Depends on who who you know who's uh, who you're talking to. Right. Whilst on the topic of the aspects of the Greco-Roman legacy like the Renaissance, you've mentioned to me in the past privately that the Romans were not that interested in truth, despite the lofty facade of what could be seen in their writings about virtue and honor and so forth. Can you expand on that? Because I think it has implications for the age that we're living in, in terms of how to contend with truth and, you know, in, in light of cosmic censorship. The, the Western society has adopted a lot of the, um, let's say, not, a, not only cultural, but uh, uh, most social aspects uh, of authoritarianism from the Roman civil aspect, you know, the Roman um, uh, society that I would say started around mm, 200 or 300 BC from that time, the later Roman emperor or the first god emperor Augustus Caesar around the first century or BC or so at the end of that time. Uh, they kind of solidified what was uh, we now define as a Roman system. And the Romans have never been interested in the truth. They are an authoritarian group uh, that has uh, assimilated other cultures, especially the Greek culture, for example. You will find in history that uh, the artisans, philosophers, scientists, what have you, of ancient Rome were not Roman at all. Um, they were essentially adopted from other cultures, uh, I would say mostly the Greek culture. And uh, they were a might makes right, which, uh, you know, uh, where is there, you know, is there a truth in might makes right? Yes, uh, if you state it as such, you know, but they are not interested in truth, for example. Uh, one example, politically, uh, the, the political system of, the, of Rome at the time was very corrupt in, in terms of being, you know, hypocrisy, waste theft, uh, immorality, and um, there was an apparatus, a very strong apparatus to cover that up and always paint it, whitewash it as, you know, as being honorable and dignified, right? And it, you can notice that this is through all the modern political systems as well. The Roman uh, system of quote-unquote justice uh, or law or legal system, again, was not based on truth. It was based on authoritarianism, right? Uh, again, um, you can almost view it as uh, uh, as one would view their timekeeping. For example, no one is questioning the Gregorian calendar. You know, the current timekeeping, the year, date, and and months uh, uh, for the, the 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 commercial in a commercial sense and social norm is to adopt the Gregorian calendar. People never address it as such. They just ask, you know, what day is it, and they spout off something off of that. And uh, if you look at the history of it, uh, they'll even in today's modern timekeeping authority, they'll tell you that it's an arbitrary uh, system. Well, it's a solar so, calendar. Well, the, the sun's uh, movements aren't arbitrary. Sure, they are. Sure, they are. You ever heard of a leap year? Yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, I would suggest that, uh, uh, you know, looking at anything from a lawful perspective, you will find it to be, again, uh, shown in a very authoritative way uh, when it's under the Roman system. And then when it's def you try to define it, you know, what's being put in front uh, forward from a Roman system, and you will see there's no truth in it, or it has no lawful base. But wait a minute, Greg, a lot of, you know, people who hear this who perhaps are versed in classical studies or ancient studies would say or claim that the Romans had all these philosophers like the Greeks did, and they, they had an output that clearly showed what their intentions and culture was, and that is not in accord with what you're talking about. Well, if you look at their, name some Roman philosophers that don't have Greek backgrounds. You can't. They, they do exist, but they're not, they're very minor. Name uh, name architects that are Roman that don't have a Greek background or Greeks themselves. And this goes all the way to the Renaissance time. And also, when you when you bring up the, the aspect of the Romans, um, I'm not interested in any truth. This is actually, you will find this as a criticism throughout history about Rome. Memorialized in people's writings, that is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a main feature because the current authority is based on that system. And and I'm saying this because I'm fair. I'm not uh, 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 for it or against it. I'm just uh, objectifying it. And fair would mean, you know, uh, bring up something and present something that anyone can access, not just your opinion or your belief, because eventually those are unsubstantiated. And because, because I think, I've, as we've discussed, and maybe we will in the future, that the the individual is of very little import. Uh, and uh, it, it sounds contrary to what people are being told, but you know, once you start to do some study, you will find that the the quote unquote um, uh, society has been groomed a certain way, not individual by individual, but a group at a time. Would you say that there's a? I mean, obviously, if you go back in time, you end up with different circumstances where perhaps you could say that people were more at the mercies of nature or certain forces or circumstances that we perhaps have alleviated somewhat today with technology. But would you say that there's a dividing line somewhere as far as perhaps ancient era versus modern era or medieval period where this sort of homogenization started to become very adamant? Because at some point you did have some kind of a flourishing of individual sensibilities, which you know would have been notable at that point, which perhaps don't exist anymore today. Uh, the only thing that doesn't exist anymore is the, the amount of time that it takes to communicate. That's been shortened. Everything else is still, uh, you know, I would say prevalent because, for example, if you, you take what's called the education system, if you look at the standards that were held as a good education a uh, 100 years ago in any country, by the way, or any culture uh, to 300 to 500 to 1,000 years ago, you'll notice that, diminished, uh, that has diminished uh, drastically, right? So, um, uh, again, that is more of the macrocosmic censorship versus the microcosmic censorship. People are being, I call it, dumbed up. Um, they they like, most like to refer to it as being dumbed down. But, it, but the, when something is increasing, it's going up. So that's why I call it being dumbed up. Uh, I think a lot of the uh, history that we've been given is merely uh, uh, a farce and that needs to be revisited. I think we were all walking around with this glorified romanticism about things like the Renaissance or certain societies. I think right now, ultimately, it, without putting, without without regret, I could say we're in the best condition 
potential condition currently than ever any other time in history. By looking at the, um, the modern era, particularly since the arrival of mass media, it does seem like the 20th century has introduced a sort of hitherto unseen social state. So as a result, we're, we're confronted with this sort of widespread existence of a type of person who acts less like his own autonomous agent of his life and is more of a reactionary subject with, with a, like a flavorless identity that sort of melts into this blob. Um, and this has happened in spite of the Renaissance and Enlightenment, as you mentioned, perhaps they're overrated. Um, but from these movements was birthed this idea of the individual, where a person who is removed from overt group control can be his own sovereign. So this quandary of having really nothing to choose from other than the unintellectual individual on one side or the impressionable masses on the other side has been a source of frustration, I think, for a long time. And one of the statements that you know, has been birthed of that, that I think we hear a lot now in the last two or three or maybe even four decades, is that people are stupid, right? You see this a lot in movies and cartoons, um, and it's sort of, you know, taken in jest, right? Even as we see it in articles and memes and, and books that sort of decry how unbearable or unreasonable mankind can be, it's taken as a sort of satire, so people have an excuse not to really address it. Why is it that a statement like, people are stupid, or some variation of that, is still popular despite all of the outcry and the polemics against humanity that we've seen over the thousands of years in, in the form of literature and, and media. Okay, let's replace the word stupid with the word broken. Because I think when you say the word stupid, it evokes a little bit of humor. Well, you know, jest, uh, like half in jest, all in earnest, right? Uh, let's replace it with the word broken. Were people made to be broken? No. But are, are they broken? Yes. And you can even see in a poetic way, you know, when something or a living is broken, it means that they lose their will. They lose their capacity to act uh, as as uh, to any potential that they would have had before or could, or do have. So I would suggest that uh, one way to view people are stupid as people are broken, because then you can answer the question very simply. And again, you sort of uh, skimmed by the concept of individuality again. And, and while you were saying that, uh, I thought of a very simple notion that the propagandists like to use is that when the propagandists are, um, or any control mechanism, social control mechanism promotes individuality, they're simply doing that because they know that once the individuality is promoted, the individual tends to feel more alone and they're easier to control that way. You see? Albeit, if one studies Gustave Le Bon, let's say, or the, the crowd or group mentality, inside the individual has to abandon the self to become so adherent to a group. So again, just tying it in, again, these are complex matters that, that uh, can be simplified uh, uh, easily, believe it or not, but they don't appear to be uh, as simple as they are because of all the various uh, overlays on it. You know, again, there's a romanticized history. There is a, um, uh, a constant uh, uh, changes in culture and what's fashionable. And then, of course, again, to lead back to the overall cosmic censorship, that is, are humans being censored? In other words, are we being blocked? And the answer to that is clearly yes. And it can be supported more qualitatively than quantitatively because, uh, for example, recently I read an article about someone uh, remote viewing moon bases. And it was a, a quite a esteemed remote viewer in the past. And the critique on the book 
was that, well, there is no supporting evidence on what he's saying. Well, that's just quantitative, not qualitative, you see. So what people are looking for and what exists, uh, when it coincides, then the, the, the coincidence of those two things is the direction of society. So, for example, if you have people that are being manipulated or blocked and um, it, 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 and their expectations are limited to the, result, the resulting of that blocking, then the society will remain in harmony. But if the individuals are, let's say, blocked or cut off or censored and uh, their expectations um, are not met, then there, you have an un uneasiness and then the formula has to be redone because you won't be able to control them. I do, I do agree that broken is functionally a more suitable word than stupid to address this condition. But I, I will return to the word stupid uh, for a second because it, it does have a meaning, right? So it's not just this pejorative nothing that we treat it as. But if we were to take the word seriously for a second, and we could you know, replace that with something like folly instead, but this is still something that has been talked about for a very long time throughout human history uh, in more than just a pejorative way. So the curious thing about stupidity or folly for me is that society doesn't seem to know much about it. Um, I don't know of any center for the study of willful ignorance or any serious academic investigation into the subject. And you will find a lot of people bloviating nowadays about gratitude and happiness and things that are very much in line with the New Age movement. So it's not out of the question to, to make a foray into various you know, mental conditions or, or, or mental states. Um, but when it comes to stupidity, we don't really see that. And when we broach the subject of mental capacity or intelligence, people would defer to the idea of IQ scores as being the only me way to measure that. If we can't really define what, or if people refuse to define what stupidity or foolishness is, how can we then claim to know what knowledge or wisdom is? Uh, yes, well, just uh, uh, while you were saying that, I looked at the uh, etymological uh, definition of stupid, mentally slow, lacking, ordinary activity of mind, dull, inane, or stupid person here, it has uh, insensibility, numbness, dullness. Uh, you hear that very much in society. People are not sensible, you know, as, in terms of common sense. They're numb, right? Apathetic and dullness, you know, where's the creativity, right? So uh, I would say that uh, in terms of the other terms being used, they can be defined. Moron can be defined. Idiot can be defined. But I think what overshadows all of it is the uh, prevalent use, in the, especially in the English uh, language, the use of the word nice, uh, misused. Right. And I think that uh, without getting into just we can do just do one hour po podcast on just the word nice and, and, and the implications of using it the way it's being used versus what it really means. So if you were to say people are nice, isn't it the same as saying people are stupid? Well, then we you have know? to define nice. Right. We have to define nice, which, which in essence means foolish, stupid and senseless. The interesting thing, depending, and again, just to turn away from you and I speaking and turn to the audience, is are you a fool? You know, whoever's listening. Well, one way to judge a fool is if you bring them competent, uh, uh, sensible, and, and you know, objective, objectively good information, and it's rejected without being considered, you're a fool, right? I think there's an ancient writ that talks about don't suffer fools, you know, or if you, you know, you mess around with fools, it's your fault. And that's to the audience, by the way. So, you know, are you a fool? You know, how many times have you come across in your own personal life uh, information that you didn't want to consider? Now, that goes beyond, for example, something where you'll hear people say, well, I just did something stupid.
How many times do you hear that? Well, let's go back and look at that very closely, or not. Actually, let's not look at it very closely. Just skim over it because it's just the same as looking at it closely. It means that you knew better, but you didn't implement that knowledge, right? Because if you never knew that, or you never knew uh, better, you would never, in, in uh, afterthought, say, I did something stupid. Now, what if you didn't have the, this basic knowledge um, well, it's, I wouldn't say wisdom is basic, but let's just call it the knowledge, uh, 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 let's say a wise mindset. Would you, is it possible, uh, either a group or an individual, to continuously do things that are quote unquote stupid and never know it? The answer to that is yes. Right? And if you want an example of that, uh, if you're probably sitting in a room with a door, just open the door and go outside. So, in connection with that, as far as wisdom, it does sound like you're saying that wisdom is something that is in, in scarce supply. So we can say that there is at current a widespread pro proliferation of stupidity or foolishness or folly. That to me doesn't seem to be insignificant in terms of analyzing cosmic censorship. Well, analyzing cosmic censorship is interesting in, in itself, and I think it's going to be ongoing until... Uh, you know, you, you run into the quandary where you have, let's say here in quotes, the, the next few sentences here, an individual that is so evolved beyond the current norm and is so perceptive and uh, knowing that they view more of reality than the others. And they notice that the others that don't view and don't have those abilities can't be changed because of an external force. Then you can have it defined. But the, the catch there is who you're going to define it to. Because there's only, a, let's say, a select group, um, whether it's by divine implication or random numbers or whatever you want to call it, a percentage, a very small group of people that could see beyond others, that can perceive beyond others, let's say, comprehend beyond others and perform beyond others, they in themselves will contain this knowledge within their group. Because they'll view the other group, it, it, once it's established that the rest uh, are not capable of going down that path or even comprehending the condition that they're in, you see. So it's going to be, under the true understanding of cosmic censorship will never be public. Uh, or it, you can, but it wouldn't matter. It would be uh, speaking Chinese to an all-English Eng audience. That's why many, many conversations can be held uh, regarding, um, uh, look how many secrets are hidden in plain sight, right? Look, look at how all of this was shown to you, but it didn't really matter until this happened, yeah? Uh, one can say then, what's the importance of uh, discussing cosmic censorship or defining it now? Very simply, and again, if anyone's heard Greek speak before, um, the, the motto of Greek speak is be set apart. You have to set yourself apart from it first. And anyone that's taken basic survival training, let's say a, a ship goes down and uh, you, you're on a lifeboat, the training, the, the, the one that is trained for that uh, situation to prevail or help others or to have a specialty in, in high survivability or survivalist would be that you have to set yourself apart from the panic. You have to set yourself apart of the ignorance of what to do. You have to set yourself apart of the potential, the being disabled by the potential danger. And you have to think clearly and you have to be calm. How many times have you heard that people in, in harsh situations remain calm? Think clearly. Just remember what your training taught you, right? So, quote unquote, special forces, you know, people that are uh, highly special, uh, trained with uh, very highly specialized abilities to prevail 
in risky situations or harsh situations have to set themselves apart, even, even from the surrounding conditions, you see. So ultimately, what one can consider with the cosmic censorship is uh, you're on your own with this, uh, meaning it doesn't mean that you can't converse with other people and there ultimately can't be a group, quote unquote, very loose group of people that uh, study and ponder this, but it ain't going to change anything because it's the part of the prevailing condition. But hold on now, you, it's not going to change anything, but we can see in the world that there is this universal disequilibrium which refuses to right itself. And in response to that, we have had people over the past two or three decades that have begun protesting very noticeably. It's obviously older than two or three decades, but as far as the most recent modern period that most people remember, we have the alternative media having come to the sort of forefront where the likes of a David Icke, who becomes famous in the mid to late, early to mid 90s for his polemical talks, is on the scene, and, and Alex Jones follows soon after with his radio show in the late 90s to early mid 2000s and his documentaries. But from what I see, it really isn't until 2007 with the Zeitgeist movie that we do get a distinct tipping point for what is generally called the consciousness movement, which has you know now become a permanent fixture at, at the edges of the mainstream society. And it does occasionally penetrate that mainstream when groups like Anonymous become popular. So now, over the past 10-15 years, it's become in vogue to be questionable of society. Why is it? Greek that despite the efforts of various alternative media personalities to wake up the masses that we don't see this large-scale awakening taking place okay let's let's backtrack the names that you mentioned and let's just not limit it to the names but just for the sake of the next few minutes let's just uh, bring uh, evoke the names that you brought up and consider that uh, these people that you just mentioned are popular yes yes they are uh, many people uh, have heard of them not everyone but I would say most even people on the street would have heard of them now in order for them to be uh, that popular they would have to accommodate the current audience and one would surmise that before they started uh, speaking the way they did, uh, the audience was in one condition. And when the people started hearing these, uh, these people that you mentioned speak, the people are now in this other condition. That's the presumption. You know, quote unquote, these people are more conscious, awake or whatever. And they're not. Because in order to be popular, you have to accommodate the prevailing condition and maintain it. So the people that are attracted generally, now I would say that I wouldn't say I'm directly attracted to, I look at, try to look at everything broadly, but the people that are generally attracted to this consciousness, consciousness, conspiratorial, alternative, uh, whatever, uh, even the peaceniks are the, you know, they used to call them in the sixties and seventies, uh, are not any different, uh, inherently than the rest. In other words, uh, they have a, um, a limited perception while they're engaging in their alternative means as well, because the people that brought them in on this, meaning the names that you brought, had to initially start their campaign by accommodating the current mindset. So it's, it's again, um, if you go to the zoo and you want to feed the animals, well, you have one bag for the lions with a certain type of food, a different one for the monkeys, a different one for the birds. And that does not change as long as there are monkeys, lions, and birds, and fish, or whatever, different types. And so the, the type that all of the alternative campaigns, let's call them, 
and individuals uh, of people that uh, they attract, they have to take them out or present it to what's called mainstream or the common consensus. And what they do is they lead them around, and uh, it'll be one specific subject isolated and sequestered from all the other pertinent ones, and um, nothing changes. But is that to say that that sphere of knowledge should be ignored completely? I mean, there are things that come out of it that do contrast to the mainstream, no? That do seem to offset that. Well, as I said earlier, uh, not ignored, but considered. Like, for example, uh, personally, I'm not attracted to the alternative stuff any more than the mainstream. I consider it, though, meaning consider it like when you're presented with something, whether it's mainstream or alternative, accepted or unaccepted. When you consider it, well, you, you look at what's being presented in the various ways you would look at any other piece of information. And then once uh, you're, depending on your, if it piques interest or uh, how significant it is to the individual, how much time they want to invest in it. Right. For example, uh, I'll, I'll go on the stupid rectangle and if it's a particular news item that's brought up, what's called the news, you know, uh, you will see uh, whether it's limited to the mainstream or limited to the alternative. Right. Like, for example, again, using medical stuff, the mainstream will never bring up negative points of vaccines, but the alternative seems to just do that. But you look at both sides, consider them equally, and then you're going to say, but wait a second. The, what is the concept of vaccination? And then you'll see the whole premise is a farce. So either way, um, the, the, the premise and the underpinning uh, or the foundation of the subject is never considered in both sides. Or I would say the alternative appears to be doing it, but even they are, are off the mark. And I think uh, in previous Greek speaks over the years, I have brought up uh, how simple it is, not always easy, but how simple it is to get to the root of the matter. Uh, in other words, reverse, you know, go in reverse of what you're being told as far back as you can go, you know, with a certain level of efficiency, find what it's based on, and then bring yourself back to what's being discussed and see if the two are pertinent. And you'll find that in almost 99% mm, of the things that people consider to be serious topics or matters are false or are based on a farce anyway. But then I have to wonder, what is the end of all the commotion that is created by things like social unrest or protest or criticism of the mainstream if the condition of cosmic censorship is unchangeable. Certainly people have over the past decade, two decades, begun to use a different vocabulary or to redirect their interests or their, their focus, and yet the implication of what you're saying is that it's all futile. It's futile in an altruistic sense, but it's not futile in the way that things have to be. Until they're not. That sounds quite Again, cryptic. Well, it, okay. It, it's, all right, let's just say it's futile when you say that we have to go out and uh, form this political party to make the country better. You've heard that before. Or it's futile to say, let's put these people in jail because they're causing harm, right? Uh, it's futile to say, let's make the world a better place. Well, all those things happen and the world will be better, humankind will, will be better overall, yes, but not within the realm of what people consider to be their reality or reality uh, as such. Are there examples of people throughout history that you would point to and say, that person did a pretty good job of escaping as much censorship as you'll ever see? No, 
no, I, I believe they do exist, but they were they were not public. Again, the problem with being a, a historical figure is that it has to accommodate the masses to be historical. Even when you look at, let's say, ancient Greek philosophy or other things like that, um, as they're presented to the public, it's not at all uh, as it was uh, memorialized. In other words, you're not given proper translations, uh, meanings are twisted, you know, the actual... Uh, 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 the the essence of the story or what the philosopher or scientist whatever said it's changed, so I would say no, uh, there isn't uh, that I that I'm aware of. But uh, did those people not exist that were set apart or let's say not as subject to cosmic censorship? Of course they existed, but they're not public figures that we know of. In allegory we do, in metaphor we do. I think in the last. Uh, episode zero, you brought up you know let's say in, in the Star Wars story the concept of the Jedi. Right. You know, they were they extracted themselves or set themselves apart from the rest. Right. Well, I think um, we've been able to say a lot about the subject of cosmic censorship, though, by no means having exhausted the subject. Is there anything else you want to highlight about the theme before we wrap up? Yes. Ultimately, uh, I would uh, put a very heavy leaning and um, let's say define the meaning ultimately that it is put upon mankind by the gods. Now, if you if you want to take what I just said and define it term by term, that would be most advisable. There's no such thing as the gods, Greek. Don't you know that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, in order to say that there is a thing, you have to define that thing. So because there's a problem in definition, it's easy to hold that statement up, isn't it? Yes, that's true. I do remember right. a few and weeks it, ago, yeah. I, I met somebody who was like, we don't even know what the word God means. And then he proceeded to try to find a definition and wasn't really successful. Well, they're immature. You see, in past events, I've always spoken about how most people stop developing at about between 9 and 12 years old. And your most esteemed academic intellectuals, I could prove to you through questioning and dialogue that they're really not beyond an adolescent. They just, the thing about academia and uh, university and the intellectual elite in their circles is not to really um, <laughs> have knowledge and wisdom, but it's to present things that they sound that they do. It's the way that they speak and how they speak and to spend a lot of time formulating presentations. It's just a different language. Yeah. I haven't found any academics suitable that I would call wise at all. Because if they were, they wouldn't be considered academics, by the way. They would be ousted by their own group. I know that sounds like a tall statement, but if you the clo initially, if you look at it, see Greek, that sounds ridiculous because, yeah, I could see... Generally, what you're saying is true because they're basically prostituting themselves to the academic society. But here's a guy. He's pretty good. Yeah, but the closer you look, you'll see he's still selling out. You see. Yeah, there's there's a uh, uh, the concept of the road less traveled. But I, I don't think what I'm talking about is even a road. You don't need you're on a hovercraft and you basically float over all kinds of things, regardless of how it's paved. That's the thing. People are on most people are on a wagon. I'm not talking about now throughout history also. Uh, and now uh, that they, they if the road isn't paved well enough for the wagon that they're driving, they don't go down it. And I'm saying that there is no road. Can you uh, navigate the entire terrain? And the best way to do that is not by touching it. You can go really close, but hover above it. Hmm. All right, then. Um, that does it for this episode, I think. The podcast recording will be available to download later in the week on greekspeak.com. And we will hopefully do another stream next week. I'd like for it to be a weekly affair, though, as I mentioned, it's all about scheduling. So we'll see how that goes. Thank you to 
the Greek for joining me once again. And thank you to those who tuned in, as well as future podcast listeners. Feel free to shoot any email queries about the podcast or the website to info at greekspeak.com. And unless the Greek has anything else that he wants to sign off with, I think I'm good. Not at all. Let's just see what we talk about next time. Okay, then. Well, then, until the next time, everybody.